So thank you everybody for coming to this evening's um, talk um, on adolescents and adult women with Asperger's syndrome. My name is Emma Faravelli um, and I'm a clinical psychologist at Minds and Hearts. Um, I've been here for about uh, a year and a half now. Um, prior to that I was working in the UK within a community um, mental health team um, where a large part of my work was working with um, children and adults with an autism spectrum condition. Um, I've continued obviously to do that here um, and a large um, proportion of my caseload is, is girls and, and adolescents and um, women on the spectrum. Hi, I'm Louise Ford and I've been at Minds and Hearts since about the middle of 2007 and so I do some individual work, um, some of the group therapy programs as well and a lot of the work that I've done um, has been with girl groups but also individual work with the, the girls and women on the spectrum. Um, what we will be going through, we'll be looking um, specifically at um, Asperger's syndrome in girls and women and how the profile differs. Issues within the diagnosis of an autism spectrum condition in women, so things that when from a clinical perspective we're looking at in terms of making the diagnosis, self-identity, um, relating to others, emotion management and then strategies. Now the strategies will relate to the areas of diagnosis, self-identity, relating to others and emotion management. And then at the end we'll be going through a number of resources that we find useful and, and would like to recommend. So for women and girls on the autism spectrum we see a number of differences in terms of their profile when we compare them to boys on the spectrum and of course when we compare them to their typically developing peers. Asperger's syndrome in girls is much more difficult to detect so we will find women coming into the clinic later in life in adolescence and adulthood who have gone many years without receiving a diagnosis and an understanding of where they're at. Um, we know that the male to female ratio is said to be four is to one. Four times as many males as females get diagnosed with an autism spectrum condition but clinical experience shows that in actual fact it's much higher. It's likely to be two is to one, two males as is to one female. Some say that girls on the autism spectrum are considered the invisible end of the spectrum. They go undiagnosed, they get missed. They're so good at camouflaging and coping um, that they're not detected. And so Ruth Baker, a woman with Asperger's syndrome, refers to them as the invisible end of the spectrum. For women and girls on the spectrum, one of the wonderful strengths that they have is their ability to cope through camouflage, mimicry, observation of others. Um, they tend to hide quite well because they can stand back, observe, watch other people interacting and know how to behave in certain social situations. Now this isn't a natural intuitive process, it's quite exhausting and often parents bear the brunt of that when the little girl or teenager comes home and you know the, the teen lets it all out. Um, the families tend to know, wow, it's been a tough day for the teen or the girl. There's this tendency to disappear in a crowd. So when we think about boys with Asperger's syndrome, they're, they're often more um, vivacious and perhaps a little bit more, um, they may appear a little bit more odd socially, whereas girls are more quiet and they can kind of slink back and observe and so they tend to be missed.
So they do try that observation. They try to understand things before making that first step. So they're not going to just bounce on in as boys would, being quite um, disinhibited and, and giving things a go and just perhaps coming across as a little bit more socially awkward or clumsy. The girls are going to be a little bit more reserved in their approach. We find that for many of the girls, reading fictional stories Watching TV series can help them enormously because they can learn about different characters and the way that they deal with certain situations and they tend to really absorb information that way. Helps them to learn about inner thoughts and feelings and it can be a, a really great way for them to cope and, and better understand the social world, which for them can be really confusing. We find that girls on the spectrum become quite good at apologising, um, you know, oh, I'm sorry about that, and, and that's often um, quite well received by others. And they're also very much the pleasers, they're wanting to appease. Girls on the spectrum tend to be less disruptive, they're not the behaviour management problems in the classrooms, and so they tend to fly under the radar. So teachers will say, often um, in shock when parents say, well, we're having our daughter assessed because we think she may be on the autism spectrum. Teachers will say, oh gosh, she's good as gold. She's an angel. I'd love to have more of her in my class. Um, that can be the case. Girls can learn, if you're good, you're left alone. So I'm just going to do the right thing. I'm not going to create a fuss and no one will make a fuss of me. We find that with girls on the spectrum, their special interests are often more unusual because of their intensity rather than their area of focus. So with the boys, we might find quite unusual interests. It might be an interest in toilet brushes or an interest in um, electric fans or things like that. But with the girls, the interests tend to be quite typical. So, okay, she's interested in animals, she's interested in horses, she's interested in reading. So are many other typically developing girls. The difference, and I suppose where it hits the, the um, more of a clinical level, is where we see the girl is absolutely absorbed in the interest, whether she's got to have her nose in a book constantly, or she's really trying to work out the, the, and understand the characters in the books and she's writing reams and reams on various scripts and things. Or if she's an animal lover, that she um, becomes a cat and laps milk from a bowl, or um, you know, meows or refuses to be called anything but a particular animal's name. That's where we see that that difference can occur. And imaginary friends um, tend to be something that we see more in the girls. They have difficulty in understanding the social world. There's that social confusion there. And so they create someone um, that they can relate to, rely on, who they can, uh, in a sense, have a, a sense of control over, who can be there for them, who can be that friend that they're perhaps longing for. For many of the girls that we see, they're socially motivated, but the issue is they're socially confused. So while they want to socialise and have many friends, they can find that difficult. We know that for individuals on the autism spectrum, when they notice the difference from others. Now this can come at different ages. It might, co might come quite early, where the child is saying, why, why do I have to go to see the psychologist? Or what's, why am I the one getting teacher aid time? Or how come I don't get invited to parties? Perhaps that can happen quite young. 
For others, it might happen later, perhaps in the teenage years, where they start to question why they're different from others. They notice the difference. And there's four ways that they might cope with that difference. One, which is quite um, adaptive um, and, and a, a lovely one for them to use, is the imitation which we've talked about. Standing back, observing, ob observing, watching social situations, trying to kind of take on a character or a role and, and act in that way. Someone with Asperger's said, I'm an exceptional mimic and I've used this to survive. I was previously diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. And when you think about where that kind of idea comes from, this person was so good at adapting a different persona for a different setting because she was so, um, I suppose, good at analysing social situations that it seemed as though she was almost a different personality across different settings. Someone else said, I try to be who they want me to be. And that's exhausting. Um, and, and I suppose what that's showing you is that they're not really sure who they are themselves. They're just trying to be who other people expect them to be. Another way that the girls on the spectrum might cope is by escaping into imagination. So they're building elaborate fantasy worlds. They're, they're um, kind of going into that world after school and talking um, in that world and engaging in those activities. It's escaping into that imagination. It's looking at role play games. It's perhaps um, used in their favour when they're older. They may become an author of fiction. You know, what we like to think about at Minds and Hearts is, well, what are the strengths that come from these particular profiles? And for many of the girls and women, they can go on to become authors. Um, and um, there are many authors with Asperger's syndrome. So one said, "I used my love of fantasy to cope with reality." Another coping strategy which perhaps is not as adaptive is one that we do tend to see sometimes and that's one of arrogance and denial. So that's a tendency, I suppose, to blame others for their differences, to not be able to see their differences in a positive way, um, but instead to, I suppose, become a little bit arrogant. Well, that's everyone else's problem. They need to change. Louise has touched on a number of areas which are really important um, when we're looking at diagnosis in, in girls and women. The current state of play is that there are no diagnostic criteria specifically for girls and women. So um, what we often do is we're working with the diagnostic criteria that we've got, which are predominantly, um, I guess, male orientated, um, and looking at where we need to be thinking differently about how that criteria might be met. So looking at what the impact are of what we're seeing in the terms of the difference in profile might fit in with that diagnostic criteria. Now, I've put down kind of four main areas that um, we, we look within that. Now, the first area would be the social domain, and Louisa's talked a lot about how the girls tend to be great at camouflaging, great at working things out, watching people, and using their skills of observation to be able to then um, cope um, to a level, to a degree. Um, so what we tend to see is not a complete failure in social skills, but it's a qualitative difference. It's that sometimes it, it goes okay, but then when something changes un unexpectedly or there's more stress in the system, the tools that they've got, they're not, they're not accessible for them and life becomes really, really difficult. So it's a qualitative difference rather than that sense of it's, they can't manage at all. And often they've really worked hard to, to develop those skills and, and, and put an awful lot of effort in. The other aspect that links in with this, Tony often calls the girls philosophers. 
and, and I've often been in session where, with the girls where they ask really profound questions about social situations that I would never have thought of um, or that would have been thinking, wow, that's really interesting because it's delving down and thinking about why people are, are doing these things, systemizing, starting to try and um, find a reason for why people behave in a certain way when we all know that often the social world is really unpredictable and we can't find that reason. It, it's, it's just the way it is. Um, but it's, it can be often using their cognitive skills, using their, their intellectual abilities to work it out. And that can really help and is, is a great strategy um, for the future. In a way, that leads into special interests. And Louise has talked about how the special interests of, um, of girls and women can often be, you know, clearly, they're not different, but they, it's the intensity. It's, it's one of the great gifts, is that focus and intensity that often gives a really uh, great drive. But that can be... The special interest can be social things. It can be understanding girl, uh, other girls, understanding um, social interactions. Um, I've had a lot of girls where fashion is a special interest. It's really, really inappropriate. Um, but it's, it's to such a level that it's really often fitting in with that social domain of wanting to get it right, um, wanting everything to match, wanting things to, to kind of fit in. And they're brilliant at it. Um, I've, I've always got a lot of admiration. Often the girls are less, have got less motor difficulties, less fine motor and gross motor difficulties. They're less clumsy than the boys. And so we're not seeing that criteria kind of standing out um, as significantly for us. And again, Louise has mentioned that often with the boys and, um, and, and adolescent boys, they'll come to the clinic because there's been difficulties with their behaviour. They've been struggling with, um, with managing their behaviour. And we don't see that so much with the girls. They don't, they're not coming because of difficulties with, with managing their emotions. Often it's coming up with the social things, the social things as it gets more sophisticated. Um, adolescence brings, uh, well, earlier than adolescence, um, brings more sophisticated socialising, which, which is really quite quite challenging. When we look also at drawing the line, now the girls have got loads of really great strategies for helping them cope, which means that they can not reach the point where they're coming for diagnostic assessment as early, but also where the symptoms that they're showing might not appear as severe. Um, they might be doing so well that actually what we're seeing and thinking, well, this, is this a clinical presentation? Is this enough to, to kind of warrant a diagnosis? What often we're looking at then is, is trying to identify times of stress, you know, is that level of coping constant or is it at periods of stress that, that, that becomes much more difficult for them? Is it more a personality type for them? Is it that they've got a, a, a more Asperger's type, type brain um, and, and type way of seeing the world rather than it being a clinical kind of diagnosis? Now, often that the, the girls will, f will find great ways of camouflaging their, their confusion or their distress, saying, no, I'm, I, I won't, I'll just miss that, that turn, or no, I'd rather not come to the party, I don't, I'm feeling a bit off colour or I don't fancy going. Um, something, finding ways to just be able to either stand on, well, I'll just watch this time um, and next time I'll join in. Ways to be able to try and gauge what to do in that situation, but also not say, I'm not, I'm not comfortable, I don't want to be here, but just to be able to give a really normative way to, to exit and to move out. Support networks are really, really important, and often that's one of the things where we're looking for ways in which they work really hard. You know, if we think about adapting to a new country, we might have to learn a new language, learn um, where everything, how everything works, where do we go and set up a bank account. Every little bit of the process is tiring. Um, and when that's a kind of constant feeling, it, it takes a lot of energy. I never seem to fit in. I can't share my emotions easily. Again, that sense of connection um, and feeling connected to be people. I don't connect with people 
like I do with nature and animals, or kids who are interacting similar ways. Um, opportunities for where you're reducing the, the variables. There's chances for, for just feeling like, oh, this is, this is a safe place. I'm okay there. Um, and that's a, that can be a really, a really important coping mechanism for, um, for the girls and women as well. And after the diagnosis, you know, before I self-diagnosed Asperger's syndrome, I was depressed about not fitting in and not knowing why. Now that I've met other adults with Asperger's syndrome, I'm more happy to know where I belong. The relief, the sense of belonging, the being able to find a community, um, and it might take time, um, and it's not, it's not straightforward, but there are networks to, to start you to link in um, and to, to kind of look for support. So self-concept and self-identity are two really important areas that all girls on the autism spectrum, adolescents, women, really need to explore. It's an area where it's not um, something that they intuitively know and understand. It's not um, a really comfortable topic for many of them. We find that for um, teenagers, um, those in the preteen years and the teenage years, they start to ask themselves, well, who am I? What am I all about? And so we talk about this stage as, as being kind of identity versus role confusion. So where, where do the girls on the spectrum usually sit? You know, with, with the sense of identity or with a role confusion? And unfortunately, for many of them, it's with role confusion. They're not sure who they are. Then they may be very eloquent in being able to describe topics of particular interest to them, very knowledgeable in certain areas have a wonderful vocabulary in, um, in general terms, but when it comes to describing personality characteristics of themselves and of other people, girls and women on the spectrum find this more difficult. So we're interested in the question of who am I? We're asking them to think about how do they see themselves, not just in terms of their physical appearance, but their likes and dislikes, their strengths and difficulties, their personality qualities, um, their uh, um, goals and aspirations for the future. So there are some groups that we run at Minds and Hearts. We have a girls group for seven to nine year old girls and we have an adolescent group for about 14 to 18 year old teenagers. And in those groups we're looking at these very questions. We're helping the children to better understand who they are and appreciate their strengths and accept their difficulties and know that they can use their strengths to work on the areas that they find challenging. And we've had some really nice feedback about some of the groups that we've run in terms of um, this area being covered because often in groups it's not. What we find is that for many of the girls on the spectrum when they start to identify the differences, if they're not doing this really important work on understanding themselves better, they can just head to that default setting of you know what, I'm defective, I'm different, there's something wrong with me. And we certainly don't want them going down that line because that's where we can see um, the risk of depression. Now Yeshi, a woman with Asperger's syndrome says, I describe my social life with this analogy. Swimming in the water is nice at first, but if it goes on for too long or too often, I start to drown. And so many people on the autism spectrum talk about um, when they um, are in the adolescent and adult years, how exhausting social interaction can be. And we see this from children right through to adulthood, that they reach their socialisation limit. And Tony Atwood talks about individuals on the spectrum requiring just a teacup full of social interaction 
yet neurotypical people needing a bucket load full. People on the spectrum are going to reach their teacup full of social interaction much more quickly than neurotypicals will. So a whole hour of play um, at lunchtime may be too much for a girl on the spectrum. Initially, it's okay. She can kind of cope with it and intellectualise and, and, um, and hold it together. But after a while, it, it can become too much for many of them. And then they need solitude and they use that as an emotional restorative. So I think Yeshi's quote really describes about safety skills for, for women on the spectrum. Workplace relationships. I think that that's another important area that once we move out of the school realm, we're suddenly in the, the workplace realm and, and how, do we, how do we work out um, what the social hierarchies are? Uh, who do we tell what to? Um, how do we... Um, how do we broach a difficult subject with our boss? Um, how do we manage those aspects of social skills, which are so Im equally important often as romantic relationships or friendships? Um, but also, how do we go about small talk? Um, we might need to say hi to, to, to people when we come into the office in the morning and then have a, a quick chat about how their weekend was. But that might be, at that point in, in time, we're focused on the, the things that we've got to do in, that, in the day. And actually, that's quite stressful, thinking about the things that we've got to do in the day. So having a chat with somebody at that point in time just feels um, uh, too much. Um, but that can be seen as a slight by your colleagues. How do you, how do you balance that out, managing and coping with your stress, versus um, not doing something that doesn't quite um, go with your colleagues at that point in time? Tem Temple Grandin, you, you might have heard about, um, is um, an adult woman with um, high-functioning autism. Um, and there is a movie that she has been done with Claire Danes, which I just realised the other day was in the video shop. Um, and it's brilliant. It's really, really good. Um, uh, a great example of the experience that she's had, but the challenges that she's overcome. Um, now, she often talks about... She's also written quite a few books, but she often talks about... Um, uh, her social difficulties and these are some of the quotes that she's that we thought were valuable to, to kind of mention because of difficulties with nonverbals, I often don't understand when other kids get bored or don't want to play engage with me anymore why did they do it what happened suddenly they were there and then they weren't I prefer communicating with people online than in person as then I can just focus on the conversation and not the other distractions and that can actually be, online communications can be a really adaptive tool. It can be something that can really help people to have that connection in a way that they struggle with people in a face-to-face -face situation. Um, and that's when I say about um, re relief can come from the dis diagnosis and that kind of sense of finding a community. Sometimes that community can be an online community um, and can be a useful help. Relationships. Sometimes I'd like to be myself, be my, by myself, and he feels like I'm pulling away from him, which I'm not. So equating that need for solitude and being on your own with the need for intimacy within a relationship. You're having to trust someone else that you have no control over with important things in your life. So, if that, so that if they plan badly or make a mistake, you have to cope with the consequences. It's tough, that. <laughs> Particularly when anxiety can be a, a big issue. Um, and... One way to cope with our anxiety is to be in control and to keep an eye on everything. Sometimes when we're in a relationship with somebody, we have to relinquish some of that control and that can make us feel more vulnerable and, and, um, and that can be, a, can be a challenge. I pulled away when people tried to hug me, 
because being touched sent an overwhelming tidal wave of stimulation through my body. Church was a nightmare because the petticoats and other Sunday clothes itched and scratched. Many behaviour problems in church could have been avoided by a few simple clothing modifications. Um, I always like to remember that one because it always reminds me that the, the answer that I'm looking for is sometimes not the answer that I'm thinking about. Um, because it's sometimes something that when you get it, you're like, oh, that can be changed so easily. Um, but it's not the immediate thing in the front of my mind. Okay. Emotion management is an issue that frequently brings people to our door. And um, people are struggling perhaps with high levels of anxiety. Maybe they're in the depths of depression and low mood. Possibly it's because there are some issues with temper tantrums, anger outbursts, some frustration, that sort of thing. So it's a really key area that um, affects individuals on the autism spectrum. So there's that difficulty with being able to identify the emotion in themselves, maybe label it correctly, communicate it to others, and manage their own emotions, let alone trying to identify emotions in others. So the world, the emotional world, is, is one that is very difficult for many women and girls on the spectrum. We find that depression occurs in one in five neurotypical people, but for the Asperger's syndrome population, it's one in three. So we're dealing with much higher rates of these conditions in girls and women on the spectrum. Okay, now before I go there... Mm -hmm. um, what we wanted to do was, um, because we have so many people in the room with experience, knowledge, um, ideas of their own, we wanted to throw over to you now, if that's okay, to, to ask you, what are some strategies that you know are effective and have helped your daughter, yourselves, um, your teenager, with um, their Asperger's syndrome across a number of domains that we've talked about tonight? In thinking about diagnoses, I guess we're interested in whether people have got any experience of, you know, tools that helped. So I guess I'd probably be interested in, because my daughter's younger, mm -hmm. and she's only eight, and I haven't actually been diagnosed, but I haven't actually shared that with her. So yep. I'd probably be interested in people's experience That's of great. sharing yep. that. So it sounds like it's a really shared process of, yeah. of exploring together, and not it's not something to be afraid of. Um, I've got a daughter who's nearly nine. Mm -hmm. Um, she's known of the diagnosis for the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, she was three and a half when she got diagnosed, mm -hmm. and I got diagnosed with residual Asperger's six months after that. Mm -hmm. So I've got this reflection thing happening in my head about my experiences, mm -hmm. and then try not to put that stuff on her. That mm -hmm. it may or may not be applicable, hard to say at the moment. But mm -hmm. for me personally, the diagnosis was the <clears throat> best thing that ever happened to me mm -hmm. because I was able then to forgive myself mm -hmm. for all past wrongs. Mm -hmm. I remember Tony Abbott once saying that, you know, you grow up either, when you're not diagnosed feeling either mad, bad or sad. Yeah. Yes. Well, I grew up feeling bad. Yeah. So that was able to pass over time, straight away, yeah. but it has been absolutely liberating. Yeah. But for my daughter now, well, I am questioning whether we've done the right thing in mm -hmm. letting her know of her diagnosis. Yep. Because for me growing up, I kept thinking, why didn't someone just tell me? Yeah. Why didn't they tell me that I, that I was doing that and then I could have fixed that? Because mm -hmm. that's how I've kind of gone on through my life. But mm -hmm. the thing was, as a teenager, I wouldn't have listened anyway and yeah. I realised that. Yeah. But for my daughter, I, I went with the idea of, well, if I tell her, then she can act on it or she can learn the deficits or, mm -hmm. you know, I or, some, or a professional can help her. Mm -hmm. 
but I'm wondering now whether I boxed her in at this age and mm -hmm. her mindset, mm -hmm. and I'm really kind of questioning that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know what's right or wrong there. Yeah. I always agree with the lady behind me that honesty is by far the best policy to go with this mm -hmm. because honesty works for an aspie. Mm -hmm. That's right. Being real. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I'm very much at the moment questioning the diagnosis and her being aware of it at the moment. I suppose what we usually suggest is when the girls start to see themselves as being different, yes. that's a good time. Yeah. And that we can jump in there before they start thinking, oh, I'm defective, something's wrong yeah. with me. Someone went out to the school and focused on the strengths. That's and right. so we have yeah. that opportunity to, to do it in a really positive way. And when we explain the diagnosis at Minds and Hearts, it's always done so positively mm -hmm. because yeah. we do feel positively about it. Really? So she's not going to ask why she's different? No. Yeah. Yeah, and we regularly do sessions yeah. where we explain the diagnosis. Yeah. So I did one this week where the parents weren't in the room. I just did it with the, um, yeah. the 12 or 13 year old boy himself. And, um, and what we say is after we've done that and explained it in a positive way, using the strengths and the challenges and emphasising using their intellect to work on the, the challenges, um, we say to the parents, back off a little bit. Don't, don't go asking too many questions. Don't go, you know, really focusing on it now. Give the child or adolescent time to kind of put it into... Um, sink it in I suppose and then he, yeah, yeah make sense of it and then they can come to you with any questions that they might have or maybe that they just feel okay about it okay no big deal that's a lovely outcome mm -hmm. that they don't think it's that big a deal mm -hmm. um, that they're not seeing it as a negative bad thing yeah. Definitely, it's like you're you're saying rephrasing, <laughs> and, yeah. and, the, and it's the way it's it's kind of approached. But well, that's a really important thing for, for the different experiences that people are having at the different point in the processes. Um, thank you. Is there anything anybody else would like to share? So the next section is that self-identity, self-concept that we talked about. Thinking about you know what has helped your daughter or you um, to build that self-concept, to understand who you are, or to understand your daughter, to help your um, daughter understand who she is. Any ideas there? So the girls' groups, it's yeah. providing that um, community, I suppose, of yeah. like-minded kids. And, oh, wow, there's other girls that are just like me, whether it be the teenage girls' group or the younger girls' group. And, you know, we had some ideas around maybe doing an adult women's group as well, but we have um, received less interest in that. But certainly they do help, yeah. Um, I think the girls, too, in that way, we're kind of on the bleeding edge because... Mm. All the data up till now has been about males. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And there's not a lot of people identifying. Like there's so many of my friends still having trouble with their girls being diagnosed. Mm. Um, not all teachers aware of what, how a girl presents. Yep. So we're really on the bleeding edge of all of this. So we have to be advocates in our own way, and we have to be able to stand up proud and educate to a degree yes. for our girls. Yes. Absolutely. So confidence coming through. For sure. Yeah. And I think positive partnerships do a good job. Um, they're a, an organisation um, which, if you Google positive partnerships, they have a lot of information and assistance in terms of advocating for your children or girls on the autism spectrum. So that might be something helpful um, to, to have a look also. Yeah. <laughs> 
if we just have a think about the, the next one, which um, I guess is relating to others, um, again, thinking about, and I, and I guess I talked across all sorts of different domains, but again, thinking about whether there's any, any things that have helped people with, um, with relating to others or helping their daughter to relate to others. So social skills, yes. you know, the social side of things, things that you found helpful, ideas. That's a, a really good at talking about things beforehand and, and, um, and preparing in advance for things that might happen is, is a really good tool. It's often a large part of the therapy that we mm. do is talking about different situations that we're going to, working out what the types of things we can do and practicing it. <laughs> so that then when we go in, much more chance of a success and, and it's such a, such a more positive experience um, and more fun is had. Um, mm. So that's a really good, good one. Anything else, anybody? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe about this is just having to be really mindful of the pragmatics of language. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of Australian for that. You know, there's a lot of the stuff that they're just like granddaddy always talking about people carrying a white pork chops. I'm only just realising now that part of the problem is the fact that she has completely misinterpreted what the intuition was. Yeah, 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 no, that's a really, it really, you, you sort of realise you got to be, it's again, it's a bit like the petticoats, it's thinking about where, where did that go wrong, yeah, 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 and pragmatics of language is a really, really important one, yeah, and it takes a lot of confidence, I've found, to support, support the girls to be able to say, I, I don't understand that, you know, it's really, really tough to, even with a close family member, to be able to say, because often we can just let it pass, um, and then there's confusion that comes out, mm. yeah. yeah. Mm. Meeting and greeting people, and that I don't know how far to push her. Because mm -hmm. some people are saying you've got to 
drumming into her and then others are saying, no, you're just going to increase the anxiety. And it's like, oh, what, what do you do? It's always that, what's the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. How much are you yeah. pushing this issue? Yeah. Because it's fine, but as she's getting older, it's not fine. As she was younger, it was always like, oh, she was shy. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's becoming quite noticeable. Yeah. And you know, to this day, the, you decide the answers to some of those questions because there can be a, a myriad I guess of questions in there is there anything that you found that you know you've times you've decided yes I'm going to do that or that's the strategy we're going to take yeah it's hard <laughs> I wasn't because I find it like talking about it is it can be a good it can be a good strategy but it's hard to know sometimes I think what the right I thing suppose, is in you know we we know the importance unfortunately in our culture and society the importance of eye contact is a sign of respect yeah, yeah. Unless, of course, it's an indigenous yeah. population. Yes. But for us, you know, it is a sign of respect and it's a sign that we're listening and things like that. I suppose using logic and, and um, appealing to their intellect yeah. and um, explaining why people look people in the face and not forcing the child to look in the eyes and to do that direct eyeballing, but instead to gaze at the face. So it might be a spot here. Um, it may be the tip of the nose. It can just be in that direction. We might even teach the child or encourage the importance of using that, um, that eye contact to start a conversation, to end a conversation, and periodically at important parts throughout the conversation, but that it doesn't have to be fixed eye gaze, which is very uncomfortable for them. I mean, even when I try and do social stories, I mentioned this in Halloween, and I do have a scrapbook or something and just try and mm -hmm. put pictures there and, you know, these little things like, oh, you know, it's nice to say hi to your sister and wake up with me, or it's nice to greet Nana, or it's nice to say hello to Nana when she walks into mm -hmm. the house because mm -hmm. it makes her feel good. I mm -hmm. try and do that when she picks up and oh, this is so stupid, I don't need this. And like she throws it away, and I'm not reading that. Sure. You know, like, mm -hmm. so it's it's difficult because it sounds like you're putting all of the things yeah. in place, but she's not taking them on board. No, We'd really suggest good. the word friendly rather than nice. It's a friendly thing to do, yeah. and then perhaps she she will see that as oh well, I want to be a good friend or I want to have friends rather than being nice. It's a little bit more kind of airy fairy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's friendly. Um, it's a very friendly thing to do, or it's a smart thing to do. Sometimes we can appeal to their intellect that way by saying it's a smart thing to do to look people in the face um, when we say hello because you know or tie it into some somebody that they admire um, that does those things uh, or yeah. conventions or something that can be <laughs> that they, where they can see those they, they, uh, you know again that that person oh because it's it, 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 it strengthens your argument as to why it's a good thing well so and so does it yeah so if they really thing. like watching yeah. saddle club or something and one of the main characters is interacting with someone else and you notice that she's using eye contact to start yeah. and end the conversation or whatever you yes. can use that to make her want to be like that person mm -hmm. So drawing in the special interest is a good idea. Yeah. 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 We turn around, so telling the child makes the other person think. <laughs> yeah. So and that really worked well for us. Like, you know, why do I have to smile and say hello to grandma? Because it makes her feel really nice. Yeah. Really <laughs> so and it's that you know, with behaviour stuff too, like that makes me really angry. You see that I'm really angry, and that worked better than telling the boy to him. 
Um, and knowledge and attitude again. Again, that's a real central theme for everything that we do. In terms of emotion management, we're encouraging a project on emotions. Even though the key emotion may be anxiety that we're wanting to address, or it may be depression, or it could be anger, by, by heading straight into those key emotions that are the ones that we're seeing as being an area of difficulty, we're missing some of the core foundation work. So we really need to do an, a project and explore some of the basics. Happiness, relaxation, as was mentioned earlier, so important to have an understanding of before we move on to the more complex emotions. Um, cognitive behaviour <laughs> therapy is the gold standard treatment for emotion management difficulties across all populations. And we know that it works well for people on the autism spectrum because it uses logic. Um, it has a cognitive component. Regular exercise. There's so much research to show that exercise improves mood, helps with frustration, helps with anxiety and burning up anxious energy. So um, certainly that's what we would be encouraging to assist in the area of emotion management. Sleep is very important. We all know what it's like to be irritable with li little sleep. So by encouraging more sleep, allowing for um, a good sleep routine, um, that will help enormously. Engaging in those pleasurable activities, whether it be a bath once a week to, to really relax with a candle or it might be um, taking the dog for a walk and, and um, spending time with a, a mentor or a friend. Whatever the pleasurable activities are, they are going to certainly feed the soul and be important for um, individuals on the spectrum. And you know, for some who find it hard to get to a psychologist or, or perhaps um, would rather do work um, on their own, there's a website called Mood Gym where you can actually do some online modules to assist in the management of your mood. So that's um, something that you can find um, quite easily on the internet. And then this is just a great quote in, in I guess, illustrating um, the importance of a special interest um, and an area which, and how that can help also um, with emotion management. Um, my emotional range is quite extreme and somewhat rudimentary. However, when I engage in my special interest on my own, I can access a great emotional realm and landscape that is wonderful and safe for me in that context. A place where you've got control over the variables, um, but you get an, a chance to to explore a realm of emotional experiences and it can feel safe, um, it can be an important thing. There are a number of books that have been written to assist women on the spectrum um, in better understanding themselves and in assisting parents to better understand their girls. We might have time for a couple of questions um, before we finish up. Um, so if anyone would like to ask a question, then now's the time to do it. Yes. So the question was, um, what do we think about the changes to the DSM-5 that um, is coming out? And will that change the work that we're doing at Minds and Hearts? Um, I guess that we're all waiting to see what the impact of the DSM-5 will have at the moment. It's certainly something that we've been talking about in the, in the clinic. Um, my understanding is that it won't change diagnoses that have been um, already, already given, but obviously there will be 
that there are changes within the diagnostic criteria that we'll be incorporating within within the within our assessments. Um, but it should, in in terms of the process and things like that, I don't think it's going to change anything significantly. Um, the question was um, at Minds and Hearts. Someone has noticed that we're using the term ASC, Autism Spectrum Condition, rather than Autism Spectrum Disorder. We find it to be a more neutral term that we don't see people um, on the autism spectrum as having a disorder per se. It's a difference. And um, so we say autism spectrum condition. And um, in the DSM-5, I think it will be saying autism spectrum disorder. I don't think it will be saying condition. But, um, but yeah, that's why we've gone with um, that more neutral term. We just think it's a nicer term yes. for us to be yeah. using. And it's certainly being more, used much more broadly, um, certainly for the UK. I know that experience that we're already using autism spectrum condition before I moved. So the question was, how can we tell if a bipolar disorder diagnosis is a misdiagnosis or if it's a comorbid diagnosis in conjunction with an autism spectrum condition? That is quite a tricky question. <laughs> um, and I guess comes down to the assessment process and the, the, the types of questions we would be asking in the assessment to, to kind of delve out, in, in some respects, primacy, um, what, what might have come first, um, but also what is, um, like Louise was saying, what is to do with an intense emotional, rapid intense emotional reaction to certain situations and what is to do with a more um, uh, significant shift in, in, in mood, um, I guess. Uh, um, I guess whether it's a longer term shi rapid shift in mood or longer term shift in mood or whether it's a rapidly fluctuating shift in mood. But again, it comes that is a very individual thing. I think that is quite a, it, there's a lot of history taking involved in that and really delving down to have a look at the, the nitty gritty, I suppose. Um, it's a, there's not an easy answer. <laughs> But it is something that comes up in the clinic where we do have people presenting with these diagnoses. And we may, um, in our, in our um, conceptualisation of the, the individual, say, do you know what? The bipolar actually doesn't fit. It was, it was an incorrect assumption that that's going on. In actual fact, it's Asperger's syndrome and difficulties with managing emotions. So that can happen. And looking at whether there's symptomology, I guess, above and beyond what we might expect to see within, within us. Yes. Yeah. So we might finish up there because I know you've all got families to go home to. We've, um, we might stop the video there as well.